Number 6. Managing for the Master. First Quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We are starting Lesson 6, Laying Up Treasure in Heaven. It's in the quarter called Managing for the Master Till He Comes. And Dr. John Pauline is our moderator, and Ashley is going to offer the opening prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we gather here today to once again open your word and dive into the messages that you have lovingly left for us to study to better connect with you throughout time. Please be with us as we focus in on the lesson today that our moderator has prepared for us. Take away all distractions, whether they be inside of us or around us, so that we can hear and understand your word and what you want us to learn today. Be with all our loved ones wherever they are, and as well as all our extended Pine Knoll family that will be listening to these messages. Be with our moderator, and thank you just so much for this group that has blessed all of us for so many years. We love you. Amen. This is the sixth in a series entitled "Managing for the Master," and it's on the general theme of stewardship and our particular. Emphasis in this particular lesson is priorities. Where is a person's priorities and stewardship? I think helps us to identify the issue of priorities in our lives. So, if you go to number one in the handout, it says our discussion this week begins with the meaning of treasure and how you lay up treasure in heaven. We'll follow that up with a number of biblical examples of people who laid up treasure in heaven. There's also a biblical example of how not to lay up treasure in heaven, and the lesson closes with some practical applications of the biblical material. So that's sort of the larger picture of what we're going to look at today. And there'll be a number of Bible stories illustrating challenges people had in determining what their priorities should be based on information God gave them. Now let's go to number two and Matthew six and verses nineteen to twenty-one. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so the obvious question here is, what do you think Jesus means by treasure? It's an interesting word. And I'd be curious what that word means to some of you, Lou. Could it mean like our time and our energy, as well as our money and things that God has blessed us with? Okay, so you're suggesting perhaps it's a metaphor of something much bigger than just money. All right, Terry. Perhaps something cherished that takes our focus and energy. Okay, another metaphorical definition. Appreciate it, Bill.、Uh, yeah, I think it's just whatever we view as value could be anything, but whatever we consider of value, and that is a prime focus, that would be our treasure. Okay, so、uh, so far we are reading the text metaphorically that Jesus is using treasure as a metaphor for perhaps something else. All right, Sherry. To me, I think it means relationships and character. Okay. All right. So we have a consensus here that Jesus is not using it simply in terms of money or uh, uh, material things, 
but that he has a more metaphorical purpose, more spiritual purpose. To do a good metaphor, of course, you have to know what the original means. And one interesting piece of this is it's what is known by Greek scholars as a cognate accusative. In other words, the verb and the object of the sentence are the same. So it's actually saying that do not treasure up treasure. So it's using the word twice in a verb form and in a noun form as an object. So do not treasure up treasure. So what would treasure mean as a verb? And when you go to the usages in the ancient Greek, it can mean save, store, gather up, set aside, among other things. And the noun can mean that which is stored up. It refers to a surplus that is not needed at the moment. In other words, a person's treasure is their abundance. It's what they have beyond the needs of getting through the day. It is their savings. It is their retirement fund. It is everything above and beyond what they actually need for that day. So when Jesus is using the word treasure that's lying in the background, Today, we might call it savings or a 401k or or things like that. This would be treasure in the ancient sense as representing a surplus that is stored up for future use. Larry? When you use the phrase, don't treasure up treasure, what immediately came to my mind was where Christ is talking about the man who seeks to save his life will lose it, and the man who's willing to give up his life will save it. Because all these other things we've talked about, but truly, our life is the one thing that we probably cherish the most. And the way you phrase the Greek statement of that led me to think of that. So that was interesting. Thank you. All right. So your suspicion is then that Jesus, and I think the verse is fairly explicit on it as well, that Jesus is contrasting a focus on this life with a focus on the life to come. Uh, Terry? So based on what you just explained, then would it be something that we put our confidence in for our well-being and or for our future stability? Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? If we're thinking of a retirement fund, it's intended to give one some confidence that you can survive at a time when you're not able to actually earn the resources to live day by day. So it's that treasuring up, it's that saving, it's accumulation of extra resources for another purpose. Lou? I liked when you introduced the topic and you talked about priorities. And there's lots of rich people in the Bible, and there's lots of wonderful rich people today that just give and share and help and everything. And I think it's a matter of our priorities. If God is our priority, then we won't be selfish and self-centered trying to have everything that money can buy. Because we've been so blessed, we would be able to bless others with whatever God has provided. From what little I know about the super-rich, I think one of the biggest stressors in the uber-rich person's life, if they have any conscience at all, of course, one of the biggest stressors is knowing where to give, when to give, how to give, and not do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. Because giving can cause more harm than good. And it's a real responsibility when you choose your giving sources. For example, I've occasionally in my midnight dreams fantasized, what if I had enough resources, you know, just to totally endow Andrews or Loma Linda or something like that. So you don't have to worry about a penny. Would that turn out well for the institution? 
I can think of a lot of ways in which that could ruin everything. As people no longer feel they have to give, as people there no longer feel they have to be careful in their resources, etc. It can change the whole mentality. So giving is a real responsibility. Michael. Yeah, following up on what you just said, John, when the Spanish invaded Mexico, it had this huge amount of wealth that came to the Spanish monarchy. And then also the Pizarro in Peru and all that vast amount of money that came into the country, it literally destroyed the middle class. In other words, there wasn't any need to work because the the country was so rich. Mm. And in other words, it had a a negative effect rather than a positive one. A very interesting piece of history there. And I think if you do that kind of historical research, it seems like when countries do really, really well, things tend to go downhill quite quickly. And so it's almost like if you're industrious, you know, you'll build up the surplus and then the surplus steals your <laughs> desire to be industrious and you end up sending people back to where they were before. Bob? One of the questions you have is when we get to the hereafter and we are not lacking for anything, what will prevent us from sliding into the thing that happens down here? I suppose it's the lack of sin, but it does seem like at that point, you don't have to worry about striving because there's that point where Adam and Eve fell where God said you're going to have to work now for a living. So it sounds like there was some sort of a change there, but yet they were to tend to gardens. So it's not sure if it was really work that they were doing or not. That's a very, very interesting observation, Bob. And I think it may give us another window into the mind of God. As God is seeking to draw this conflict to a close, he needs to do it in a way that ensures the security of the universe from that time on. And that is no easy process. Can you put people into a perfect environment and not have it affect them in a negative way? at some point. Uh, it's an interesting point. I don't know that the Bible necessarily addresses that, but I think as God is looking at the longer picture, that's going to be a part of the factor. And I think definitely what hints we have is that people will definitely be occupied in eternity, but maybe not for remuneration. That may not be necessary, but occupied for the sheer joy of doing it. Well, we'll be interested to see how that all turns out. Sean? Yes, thank you. Good morning. It seems that in the context here of Jesus's teachings, these statements that we're examining come after quite a long dialogue of contrast between what the people in that setting were hearing from the religious teachers of the day. As many of the texts indicate, you have heard it said, it has also been said, you have further heard Jesus seems to be creating this contrast, which to me, the way I look at this, is the only way a person can effectively evaluate your own values. And I think that the impact that I'm left with here is that Jesus is attempting to shake up the thinking a little bit of those in the listening audience so that they can evaluate what they have been hearing with another option. And treasure seems to come to me after I have done that type of scrutiny and that evaluation so that I can place in my own value system what it is that I would like to choose and go after and live by. So in a practical sense, Jesus is helping these individuals by contrast 
to examine what it is they haven't really thought through before. And to me, wherever you land is treasure. Thank you. That's the thought that came to my mind. All right. Now, what do you think of the motivations, Jesus' motivational strategy in Matthew 6? You know, it'll be better for you to lay up this kind of treasure rather than that. Is there room for selfish motivations in our response to God? Rita? I'm looking at the context of those verses in Matthew chapter 6, which is part of his Sermon on the Mount. And if we look at all the bits that he's been talking about prior to that, it seems to me that everything preceding it has been all about changing the mindset from me and I to something else, somewhere else, to a you're more important than me kind of idea. Because he's saying, don't do things to make yourself look big. Don't do things to impress other people because you'll only end up being pulled down off your pedestal somehow or other. You're thinking maybe we wouldn't be correct in reading this as a selfish motivation, but rather he's simply saying where you direct your attention. Yes. Yes, because all along God has wanted to restore that relationship between him and humans and in fact to with the whole universe. And he's saying, this is where your security lies. This is where your self-worth lies. This is where your significance lies. It's with me. God's saying it's with me in heaven, not anywhere on earth. You're not going to get any of that from anyone on earth, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you compare yourself with others. It's interesting. The lesson has a comment that I thought was very much worth sharing for our consideration. It says, if we put our money time and prayer into God's work, we will become more interested in God's work than before. In other words, the treasure in the heart, you put your treasure, in this case, seeing it more as financial, but if you put your treasure into the things of God, it will have an impact upon you and you'll become more interested. And I've noticed that through the years in various institutions I've worked, that when donors invest in the institution, they become much more interested in the day-to-day operations of that institution. So I thought that's an interesting point. Larry. A couple of thoughts on that. First of all, I'm going to defend looking out for the self-interest or the selfish motivation, because since we're this side of Eden, that really is who we are. So to say that that's bad on the face of it, I think it creates some problems. So with that goes the fact that Coming to a group like Pine Knoll, for me, it enables me to live and practice a lifestyle that is different than the way I live in the toiling working world where I truly have to look out for my own self-interest because it really is when you and I are negotiating, you have to look out for your interest. I'm looking out for mine. Here, we look out for everybody's interest, which I believe is the benefit. That's what makes Pine Knoll and other groups like this a place of heaven on earth. And then when people ask me for my money, I always suggest to them to be very careful because I have a tendency to go where my money goes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, yes, that point is well taken. All right. Well, what this lesson does is after initially raising this whole issue of treasure and priorities, then goes to a number of biblical examples of people who are confronted with that kind of choice. Where are you going to lay up your treasure? All right, Michael. There are a number of very wealthy people who 
for many, many decades, well back into the 19th century, who donated huge sums of money. The Andrew Carnegie comes to mind, built libraries all over the United States. And then there's things like the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation. They do lots of good. Henry Ford founded and paid entirely for the construction endowment of the University of Chicago. But you, John, gave me the example of endowing low Melinda University and so they would be able to pay all the salaries and do all the research and so forth that they ever wanted to. However, one of the things that happens with that, if that were to occur, is undoubtedly the university would turn to you and say, what would you like to see? The, where would you like the university to go? What direction you think it would take. And oftentimes, we know that people and foundations who endow different schools also have their own priorities they want. For example, I'll give you $150,000 to your university, but I don't want to hear any more about this, this, and that, and so forth. And just a natural tendency, humans do those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's called control, isn't it? All right, Genesis 6, 5 to 14. And I want you, as she is reading and considering this passage, notice how the God language changes, how the terms about God are used in this particular passage. So Genesis 6, 5 to 14. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Did anybody notice the change in the God language in the middle of this passage? Do you notice that in verses 5 through 8, the Lord saw how great wickedness was? The Lord was grieved. The Lord said, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then you go to verse 9 and on, and it says, Noah walked with God, and the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and God saw how corrupt the earth had become. So God said to Noah, etc. That's interesting, isn't it? And if you put the two stories side by side, you'll see that they're very, very similar. They touch on the same kinds of things. And if you've ever heard of JEDP, any of you have ever done scholarly studies in the Bible, scholars have looked at passages like this and said, these must be different sources, that there was a Yahwist source, that's the J, or there's an Eloist source, that's the God. You see, same story is told, but God is called Yahweh in the one, and he's called Elohim 
in the other. So that's not anything for us to particularly do anything with here, but you'll notice frequently, especially in the early books of the Bible, things will be said twice, and that often it'll change the term of God. And it isn't impossible that uh, sources were used. There's plenty of places in the Bible that sources are used. I don't think that should scare us at all. But when you really look carefully at a text, it's interesting the, the subtle things that you will sometimes see. We'll do that a little later with the story of the rich young ruler and discover that there's some fascinating differences between the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story. So here, what's wrong with the pre-Diluvians, the people that were there before the flood? Before the flood, what were the problems here? Dan? The question that I have is, you say two sources. Writing occurred somewhere, Moses wrote things down around 1500 BC or somewhere in that time frame. Writing didn't occur that much earlier than that. So were these two oral traditions that were brought together? You say two sources, but was it probably two oral traditions, or do you think it was two writers that had written something down before this? Yeah. Well, writing is much earlier than the time of Moses, actually. What is not so early is the alphabet. You see, the earliest writing was picture language, where you'd have a picture that would represent a word or a phrase. And this is typical of Egyptian language, the so-called hieroglyphics. But then language developed to cuneiform, and this is particularly common in Mesopotamia, where Iraq is today. And there, each character would represent a syllable. So you had a syllabic language called cuneiform. Uh, alphabetic language is relatively late, so it's possible. You know, if you, if you put Moses, say, at 1500 BC or 1400 BC, uh, we know that the Canaanites were using alphabet around that time. But Moses wasn't in Canaan yet, you see, and only arrived nearby fairly late in his life. So perhaps Moses' original writings were in the Egyptian word script, where each character represents a word. So that part we don't know. That there could be written sources is definitely true, because we know that the Egyptian writing goes back well before the time of Abraham, even, as well as Moses. So, in the book of Genesis, you actually have 11 times this thing. This is the generations of. And there are tablets in the ancient world from this time where that phrase meant, this is the guy who owns the tablet, <laughs> you see, or this is the guy who created it, developed its production. This happens 11 times in Genesis, suggesting that there may have been a number of written sources that were used even by Moses already. That would have been possible. Larry? To me, this is an example of God including things that if there were two oral traditions or two written traditions and various groups believed one or the other, this is possibly an attempt to be inclusive and bring them together to say you're both right in how you're looking at this and trying to make the historical benefit as attractive to mankind as he possibly can. There are definitely ancient examples of what's called conflation, where you take two sources and weave them together in order to show that both of these sources are united, that they're not contradictory to each other. Some scholars suggest that Mark is a conflation 
of Matthew and Luke, because pretty much everything in Matthew and Luke is in Mark, and Mark doesn't have a whole lot other than that. So that's an observation to begin with. But it's interesting that Mark seems to follow Matthew for like five stories in a row, and then Luke for four or five stories in a row, and, and switches back and forth, assuming then that Mark wrote last and had Matthew and Luke before him. We don't know that for a fact. But there are examples of conflation in the ancient world, and Moses could easily have been seeking to bring various traditions together in a unified perspective. Of course, if you are a person who's interested and follows the life of Ellen White, you now know that she used many sources, not only her own previous writings, which is frequent, but also the writings of others, particularly historians and health experts and so on. So the use of sources is not something that undermines the idea of God's revelation. God meets people where they are and sometimes inspires people to be good researchers. Now, in the Genesis story, God identifies two issues with that generation. The one issue is corruption, and the other is violence. And we think of corruption, Bob and Michael, you're usually talking about money, right? How people make deals, whether it's bribery or whatever, ways in order to get money illegally or inappropriately. Of course, violence is the harm that people do to each other. So in this civilization, this ancient civilization, God identified two reasons why that civilization was in need of coming to an end. But what was God asking Noah to do? As Noah comes into this situation, God calls him. And notice, first of all, he asks Noah to give up about 13 14% of his life. It would be like God coming to any one of us and say, okay, for the next 10 years, you're doing nothing that interests you, nothing that was ever important to you before. You're going to now do this for the next 10 years. 120 years, Noah drops earning his own way. He drops all of his interests and priorities, etc., to do this boat building thing. And if you've never seen a rainstorm and you're in a landlocked country, and God tells you to build a boat, that's a sacrifice. That's kind of like, nobody's going to see any sense in this. I'm not sure I see any sense in this, but God is asking me to do it. So he's asking Noah to give up 13% of his actual lifespan, paying the cost, giving the time, doing the labor, buying, collecting materials. And as far as we know, had no help outside of his own immediate family. Probably why it took 120 years to build a boat. So God's call was a radical call to Noah. Bob? Of course, if you do a cost-benefit analysis, Noah got the rest of his life and he got the whole world with his kids. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty good gain. He survived, yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much God told Noah what was going to happen, but if yeah. somebody came to us and said, look, if you build this boat, you will live. If you don't, you will drown. He'd say, where do I get started? So I don't know. Maybe Noah didn't know, but maybe God did clue him in that this is going to be your life, literally. If a ship is sinking, what is a lifeboat worth? Mm -hmm. Well, let's assume that you're right on that and that Noah's sacrifice makes a lot more sense than the way I portrayed it. What would be the point of including this story in terms of priorities? Larry? Following you with what Bob just said in your reply, 
We're going to, I think, later on this morning in this session, discuss a story in the time of Christ where he asked a rich young ruler to do the same thing that he asked Noah to do. And apparently, Noah must have had some level of means and been a wealthy individual to be able to afford to do what he did. Although your one comment that did strike me as interesting is that the boat isn't gigantic in the terms of humongous. It's a big boat, but 120 years, there may have only been two or three people working on that boat because an entire crew, it would seem, could have knocked it out in several years. So there has to be some other reason, but your comment just led me to think about the rich young ruler and Christ. So maybe whoever put these lessons together, maybe that's one of the things they're thinking about. He sort of gave everything. The question was raised whether there could be some selfish motives in making that choice, survival of him and his family, etc. But the point still seems to be, if your present life is just fine, you're still investing 120 years on a future that you only know is coming because you trust God. And so trusting God to put off the present pleasures, the present success, the present position for something beyond. That's, I think, a common theme in all these stories. Bob? There are many philosophers who have debated, and I just had read something this last week, that there are two points of view. One is short-term and one is long-term. That gets into even economics, and there are different schools of thought, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, or the other philosophy that plan for the future long-term and deferred gratification. So if you trust God, you have that philosophy. And and I think you can point to a lot of people who have fled their originally homeland for religious persecution reasons, like people who crossed in the Mayflower, uh, people like that who we celebrate in our own history of this country. Those people, some of them didn't make it. A lot of them didn't make it, but they were looking for something better. And a lot of it had to do with their spiritual outlook on what they thought was the best choice they could make. For themselves and their families. So is it selfish to want to go to heaven? Is it selfish to want to live in a better place? No doubt Noah was observing the corruption around him too. And he may have, in a sense, talked with God and said, what do you do when things get so bad? And so maybe he had some insight. You know, we're speculating a little bit, but a lot of people have been martyrs who have felt that the better choice was to sacrifice their life, I think like Larry went into earlier, rather than make the wrong choice. And it does become an individual choice, but I think one could reason and say, okay, there might be, I don't think it's selfish, I think it's just a long-term look. All of us who are spending time on this class, we're putting time, you could be doing something else, but we think that planning for eternity is very important. It's a very high priority for us. So I think there's a lot of people who make choices the best they can do at that time, Maybe it is Noah looking long-term at what would be important for he and his family because he sees the corruption around him. So he's not shocked that God has got to do something. I think you make a very interesting point. You mentioned the term delayed gratification. And I think people who study these things indicate that maturity is the ability to defer gratification. When you're a child, if you say to the child, do this and you'll get a graham cracker or something, if the graham cracker doesn't come within the first five minutes, there's no connection between the two in <laughs> the child's mind. You know, it has to be right away. But as people become more mature, they can save for retirement, even though that's a long way ahead. You know, And you feel like, I might never see that, but you still do it anyway. Maturity is delayed gratification. In a sense, I think the examples in the story are mature people 
who just went ahead and said, well, this is not going to be the best thing for me in the next one, two, or five years, but the long-term picture is important to me. And so we see Noah making that decision. Number four in your handout leads us to Genesis 12 and the story of Abraham. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, so Abraham is called by God with a promise of blessing. And the question is, what does blessing mean? It's a term we use all the time, bless the missionaries and comforters around the world. So what on earth does it actually mean? And in the biblical sense, in the ancient sense, the root meaning of blessing is material wealth. That blessing comes when a person is in a better state financially, a better state in their household, etc. But often in the Bible, the word blessing is used metaphorically that the word that essentially means, you know, you follow me and these good things will happen to you financially and so on. It's also spiritual, that there will be a blessing, meaning that just as you are enriched in material things that the word talks about, but it also means being enriched in spiritual things, enriched in relationship with God, enriched in the possibilities that come from God. And in Deuteronomy, you see the material side of it. God says, if you obey me, if you trust me, all these good things will happen. And they're all material, pretty much. You'll have more cattle. Your crops will do well. You'll be protected from enemies, uh, protected from locusts, etc. So you see the material side of it. If you disobey, then all these bad things will happen and you'll lose more and more of what is going on. So through Israel, the material blessing can be seen in the promises of God. But how did God ultimately fulfill the blessing of Abraham to all the nations? The New Testament says that the blessing comes through the gospel, that the message about Jesus is the blessing that God was talking about with Abraham. Let's read Hebrews 11, 8 to 13. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to a city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, he received power of procreation, even though he was too old, and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. Now, often people talk about three stages of development. The first stage is the hunter-gatherer. The second stage is the barbarian, the person who may settle for a short time, exhaust the resources there, and then move on. 
But then comes civilization, where people settle down. Agriculture becomes an industry, etc. Abraham was a civilized man, and he lived in Ur, the Chaldees, and then later on Haran. These were major cities in the ancient world. They had buildings, they had comforts, etc. God called him to leave that. He spent the rest of his life in tents. He stepped back to the barbarian stage. And we'll see later on with him and Lot, there's a little bit of that, I think, also in play as well. But Abraham left the civilized comforts of Ur and Haran. It was a place with lots of water and fertile soil. And through irrigation, people could become rich in a hurry because agriculture was the way that people accumulated a surplus. If they were successful at agriculture, they would become rich. So Abraham left all those opportunities, went to a land that didn't have irrigation, didn't have canals, not enough rainfall where Abraham needed to trust in God. And God blessed him materially. He and Lot, in spite of leaving the place where it's easy to get rich, they got rich anyway. So God's blessing would clearly be upon them in the material sense. But God was asking them to leave everything that they had and Hebrews 11 says they died never seeing the promises. They never got to live in a city because it says Abraham was looking to another city that is yet to come. So we can see that Abraham gave up a lot to pursue God's call, never fully saw the fulfillment of all these promises. And the patriarchs behind him, Isaac and Jacob, in a way had a very similar experience because Jacob ends up in Egypt as a foreigner. So whatever they had going on in Canaan was no longer valid and alive. So all of the patriarchs died without receiving the promises, as it says, what was promised. Sean? Well, Abraham was living in a civilized context when he got this call. He was not, at that time, a great nation. He was told that through him, he would not only have land of his own, but that through him, he would become a great nation. My question is, is that selfish for him to move from one context to another, anticipating that he, his household and his heritage would become this great nation? Now, yes, he never did. The author of Hebrews tells us he never did see that fulfillment. But is there selfishness in that motivation for him to move from a civilized world to this thought of, wow, I'm going to become a great nation. Well, you know, this conversation, which is a good one, uh, keeps coming up. It reminds me of Graham Maxwell's three types of obedience. The first type is obedience because you're afraid of punishment or you're eager to get a reward. And you see that in some of these texts. You see the language of it. We'll see in Hebrews 11 with Moses that he did what he did because his eye was on the reward. But then the second motive for obedience is pleasing God. And the third motive of obedience is to so embrace God's ways that what God is asking for becomes what you really, really want. And my suspicion is God will take it either way, that God is willing to accept us on any grounds that we would come. It's better for us if we embrace his ways as our own. But if the best we can come up with is, well, Lord, I'm scared to death, but I'm going to come anyway. Uh, God will say, all right, you know, we can work on that later. Henry. I think that that was a great comment, Sean. And I think we need to see it probably in the perspective that God continues to see us. Yeah, it may have been selfish for Abraham when he took the first step and when he moved forward. 
but he reached the point when he was ready to terminate the life of that descendant that was offered to him. At that point, it was not selfish anymore. Mm. At that point, the transition has occurred, and that is what God is waiting for us. He is not taking us because we are good. He is taking us because there is potential there if we mm. keep trusting. So the first step can be in the growing direction for the growing motivation. And as many of us here, we probably don't even need to have the offer of eternal life. But you will continue to meet here every week to keep talking about the good God because it doesn't matter. Probably that was the first reason why we came here, the eternal life, the selfish motivation, but we're no longer clinging to that because he is worth it. He gave it to us or not. Deep stuff, Henry. Keep it coming. Thank you. Julie. If God had said, okay, Abraham, you're going to go to this country and nothing's going to come of it. And you're going to do this for me, but there's no promise whatsoever that anybody in the world is going to benefit like that, especially not you. And same thing, we're going to build this ark. We would probably say that they were pretty stupid for doing that. So <laughs> there's a little bit of common sense, I think, in the fact that you know, we can call it selfish, but there's a little common sense that you make a decision that makes sense and that God does something that makes sense. And he makes it clear that now, of course, there are a few times where God asked people to do things that didn't seem to make sense, but I don't know. I have a hard time putting the idea of selfishness into the concept of completely leaving your home and your family and going off somewhere where there's a great deal of risk for a belief in a God that you can't see. It's a very difficult thing. And I think most of us probably wouldn't do it. The other thing that strikes me is we think about these decisions that these two men made and many others in the Bible to follow God and to do something that was pretty radical and a lot of sacrifice. It wasn't a one-time decision. It had to keep being made over and over and over again. And then, of course, things changed and things got harder each time. And that person had to keep making them. Many years ago, I was a student missionary and they taught us before we went out that there were like these three stages that you went out and you had the honeymoon phase and everything was exciting because you were doing this great thing. And for various people, it would hit at other times, but then you hit this low where you had culture shock and everything seemed horrible and you didn't want to be there anymore and you wanted to go home and you didn't like the language and you didn't like the food, et cetera, et cetera. And then eventually after several months, you would reach this kind of plateau state. These were student missionaries going out for a year. So you always had this idea that eventually you were going back. These guys didn't have that idea. And especially for Noah, he was between a rock and a hard place. He could stop what he was doing and not follow what God wanted him to and enjoy life right then and there. But the alternative of following what God wanted and living in a world with absolutely no other people but his family was probably not entirely enticing and appealing. But I think, like you say, the bigger issue was he's doing things because inherently God's plan is his plan. It's become part of his heart and his life, and he can see the good. So anyway, that was just some countering on that concept of it's being a selfish thing. Yeah, I think we all realize that when it comes to motivations, we're all a mixed bag, aren't we? And at times there's altruism, at times there's selfishness, and at times they're woven together in a way we don't even realize. So I think you rightly warn us not to assume you know, the inner attitude of any of these saints in particular. But as we apply these stories to ourselves, to be aware that if we were walking in those same shoes, we would struggle, I think, with the issue of selfishness. And I suspect that they did as well, even if that's not featured in the way the story is told. Uh, let's go to number five. And Genesis 32, 22 to 31, it's a fascinating story of wrestling with the angel. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, 
he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him, and he passed Peniel limping because of his hip. So the interesting piece here, I think, is the name change. What does Israel mean? What's the meaning of that term? And for the sake of time, let me just break it down for you. It's actually a sentence. The I at the beginning or the Y actually in the Hebrew could be the subject pronoun he, and then sar in the middle, the SR consonants. That's normally the word for prince. And so Sarah is princess. But deeper behind that is as a verb, sar means to wrestle or to struggle. So Israel ultimately means. He wrestles L with God. He wrestles with God, the meaning of the name Israel. But there's an even deeper root meaning. The word for wrestle, actually the root of it means turn the head. And that suggests to me that Sarah must have been a really cute baby, you know, because turning the head when you see a really cute baby, you know, you whip your head around. In wrestling, of course, someone gets you in a headlock and he's turning your head. So the language here is fun and fascinating stuff. So at the root of God's spiritual name for Jacob is a reminder that he's someone who wrestles with God. He's not a passive follower. He's somebody who engages God and sometimes disagrees with God, as his grandfather Abraham did, as Moses later would do. So we see in here God appreciating the fact that Jacob wouldn't give up, that even though he was overwhelmed by someone more powerful, he wouldn't let go. He wouldn't quit the contest. And so Israel at its root means someone who wrestles with God. And that's become the name for God's people in this world, those who wrestle with God, as opposed perhaps to those who simply ignore God. Livius. I just love that. Could we say that he turned his head towards God? That's a powerful thing to think about, the wrestling with God. I think the turning his head towards God is super, super powerful. You took it a step further than I did. That's good. I like that. Obviously, you have to be aware of the root fallacy, as linguists will talk about, where you just take the root and apply it everywhere. People who use a word aren't necessarily conscious of the roots. But knowing that root and how the word got to where it got, that is really powerful. And assuming that there's some sense of that in the text, that this was the moment when Jacob stopped turning his head toward himself and began to truly walk with God. Ashley? I think I'm just reminded of how counter that concept is to, I think, of a lot of maybe fundamental or historical views of God, where he's seen as like a unbending Mm -hmm. (laughs) figure that you can't talk to or have like a personal relationship with, and that he's not genuinely interested in what you have to say. So it's just, yeah, very interesting that that's at the core of everything. Like you said, like the name that became his people that continued on until today, that that concept is at the beginning of all that. 
Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you very much. Let's go on to Genesis 49, 29 to 33, because I think that's the primary reason that the author of the lesson wants us to look at the Jacob story. Genesis 49 and verses 29 to 33. Then he charged them, saying to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my ancestors in the cave in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave in the field at Machpelah, near Mamre, in the land of Canaan, in the field that Abraham brought from Ephron, the Hittite, as a burial site. There Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were buried. There Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were purchased from the Hittites. When Jacob ended his charge to his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Turns out that Rachel and Leah were buried 20 miles apart. We don't want to get us distracted, but it's interesting. Jacob says, take me to the place where I buried Leah. So that may be a undercurrent to that story that we haven't always explored. But the point here is, why is he talking about his burial? Why is it so important to be buried there? I think it's because he never saw the promise. He wanted at the point of his resurrection to wake up in the land of the promise. He wanted to see for himself what God had promised to him. And perhaps here we see a glimpse of resurrection in the Pentateuch, which is otherwise not mentioned. Uh, Let's go on to number six. And it's Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 29, the story of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered abuse suffered for the Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, unafraid of the king's anger, for he persevered as though he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land, but when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. So what did Moses get for accepting God's call? He was looking for the reward, and I'll be interested in what you think that reward might be. But look what he was giving up. He was the leader of a world power. His position was equivalent of a vice president or secretary of defense. The Nile River was the greatest wealth producer of the ancient world. Egypt has the richest imaginable soil, and every spring it's richly watered by the water that comes down from the mountains and he not only had great wealth he had the adoration of his people and a life of comfort like you wouldn't have pretty much anywhere else it was an amazing life and yet he gave that all up looking for the reward clearly not something that he had in front of him clearly something off in the future clearly something that he felt was worth giving up all that he had right in front of him so you have these series of stories of people who are confronted by god with a choice and calling them to truly give up everything in a real sense in order to have their eyes on something in the future but there's one story here that we want to get to before we close and that's genesis 13 and number seven of the handout genesis 13 is the story of lot 
And Lot also was confronted with a choice, and we see what choice he made. Genesis 13, 10 to 12. Lot looked about him and saw that the plain of the Jordan was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastwards. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the plain and moved his tent as far as Sodom. All right, so verse 10 says, he saw that the plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the garden of Eden. Egypt and Mesopotamia are very different from Canaan. Canaan is a mountainous territory. It is very dry. There are only a few springs here and there. So irrigating is not an option. Lot looks down from the heights, looks down at that valley, and it's the only real river in the whole area. They have brooks, but the Jordan was the one real river. There's a mountain called Hermon, which is up in the border area of Syria, Lebanon, and Israel today. And I understand that Mount Hermon is a porous mountain. In other words, when the rain and snow melt and everything else comes down, and Mount Hermon does have snow some parts of the year, it all drains down like a sponge to the bottom and then comes pouring out into what we call Israel today. And if you've ever gone to northern Israel, there's a park called Tel Dan. And the park is just water everywhere, just kind of like the Everglades. It's just quite a bit wide and everything, just trickling down from Mount Hermon in a constant stream. And that ends up being the Sea of Galilee and ultimately the Jordan River. Lot took a look and he said, man, that's where you can get really rich. And here's the fascinating thing. They went to a place that didn't have natural advantages and they got rich anyway. Lot went to the place with all the advantages and ended up with nothing. So Lot made the choice, but a different choice than the others. Why do you think, beyond the wealth aspect, why would he choose to go to Sodom? I think in part it was city life is better than country life. More things to do, more people to engage with, etc. And the wealth, yeah. But on the other side, the sinful influences and a little piece of it we discover later on, the valley was under Babylon's control. The reason that that battle was fought in Genesis 14 was because the kings in the valley there decided to withhold the tribute, the tax money that they owed to Babylon. And so the Babylonians sent an army to get the territory back. So Lot moved from independence to under the heel of Babylon, a term which is never positive in the Bible. So that's a further dynamic. So you're under Babylon's control. You're in the middle of sinful influences. God wanted to spare him all of those, but Lot made the choice that he made. And in the end, of course, Sodom was destroyed by fire, as we know. But in Genesis 18, Abraham argues with God over Sodom. He intercedes for Sodom. And he starts with 50 and he goes down to 10. And notice one thing, God never stopped granting Abraham's request for mercy until Abraham stopped asking. I've always wondered if Abraham had gone to five, if he had gone to two, would God have said yes? What do you think? How many righteous people were there in Sodom? Four, three, two, one, zero? 
when you look at the after story of Sodom, the zero maybe looks better than the one, two, three, or four. What do you think? Let me try a, a different tag. How ready would you be to make a major change in your life if God called you the way he called Noah? And Livius, go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> I think there were zero. I think maybe the rush to get Lot out maybe was a favor to Abraham. I don't know. But there's something interesting in the original foundational passage we read in the beginning about laying your treasure up. If we continue reading to verse 22, it says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So there's this idea of this treasure piercing. It's like a matter of the heart, a characterological attribute to gaining this treasure. And we've read, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've read in, in Noah, the story of Noah, God looked, the Lord saw Lot here, Lot lifted up his eyes and looked. So there's this piercing idea of maybe piercing into the soul. And even Lot's wife, it says, but Lot's wife behind him looked back. What does she look for? And she was turned into a pillar of salt. And I found this interesting rendition from the English Standard Version with this idea of, of turning into a pillar of salt. And Jesus says, remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I think Larry mentioned that before. So this visual representation of Lot's wife being preserved, you know, salt preserves, works to preserve food, draws water out of flesh and dries it out. And so this image of going into the heart of his wife, Lot's wife, of what she was desiring. In this image here, there's also an echo of repentance. They're fleeing, they're turning away, but she turns back. She does a full 360. So it's a powerful insight of this looking and piercing into the heart of this treasure of where our sights are pointed towards. Of those observations, and we remember turning the head, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. That's a subtle one, but it is embedded in the very name that God gives Jacob. Henry challenges us with this question, could Lot have left Sodom with all of his riches and wealth if he'd only have been willing to leave without needing to be dragged out by the angels? <laughs> Interesting. So where you place your eyes, what gets your attention gets you, is another way to put it. And that seems to be a root theme of this lesson. So as we bring this home to a close, I just thought, can we make this moment of confrontation personal? Can we make it real? And how would we operate at that moment? And one thing that comes to mind is moving your elderly parents in. If God said, I want you to move your elderly parents in, take care of them, that's huge. That's major sacrifice. If God says, sell all that you have and give to a mission project, and we knew it was God, would we do it? If God says, sell all you have and buy Bitcoin just before the crash, what would you think of God at that point? I'm just wrestling with a few things here, just the analogies, just trying to get us to think, can we put ourselves in the place of Abraham and Moses and Jacob and Lot and all these other characters? Can we put ourselves in their place and say, am I at a spiritual place? Is my head turned in a direction that if God came and, and gave us that type of call, we would be as ready as these others to move and act? That, I think, is the key take-home, and it helps so much to have a picture of God and knows that God would never ask you to do anything 
that isn't ultimately for your best good. So even if it seems like a huge sacrifice, God is in it, and God wants what is best for us. Rita? I'm wondering whether this is more an example of God knowing the heart and knowing what people are desiring and using that, giving them encouragement to follow that. When we talked about Noah, it says Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. If I'd been Noah, if I'd been like that, and the world was corrupt around me, I would have thought, how can I get away from this? I'm wondering if he wanted to get away and so heard God telling him what to do to get away from it. And Abraham, we've learned now from recent archaeology what Haran was like, probably as corrupt as the world was that Noah was leaving or wanted to leave. And if Abraham wanted to get away from that, would wondering how he could get away from it and was prepared to listen to God. And God said, pack it all up and go where I tell you to, rather than it being the other way around, rather than God saying, do this and then obeying God. It's a wish to be in this different place, a wish to be away from this corrupt world. And is that not the same with us? We want to be away from this corrupt world. So we listen to God and say, this is the way to go. This is how you can get away from this corrupt world. All right, Livius. I love that, Rita. I think we don't often think about this interaction between the thoughts that we struggle with and the collaboration and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it was easy for Noah to spend 120 years building an ark because it was his way out. Like he was looking to get out of that situation. Same for Abraham. So I think there's this interesting, it makes it easy for us, like when we are seeing the heartache and the death or whatever the situation may be, it's like, man, I just want to get out of here. This isn't right. And we're right to receive instructions, convictions from the Holy Spirit to take us to that next level. Thank you. Uh, Sherry? I agree that I think the Holy Spirit is very much involved and working with us as the choices come to us. But I also think that God is very wise and very practical in the way he deals with us. He doesn't tell us all of what's going to happen at once. We learn just a little bit at a time, enough that we can deal with that isn't too overwhelming to us. And then it becomes a wild ride, but a little bit at a time, and he's helping us through it. So we don't know everything that's going to happen at once. It's just the first taste of the story. He's very wise about the way he guides us. Thank you. Well, we've come toward the end of things and the lesson draws to a close of the point that Bob brought up earlier, and that is the idea that there's one human characteristic that is most strongly predictive of the kind of life you would choose if God called you, and that's delayed gratification, spiritual maturity, that if a person can weigh what is best without a time frame in mind, say, well, it's got to be right away or I don't care, to be matured beyond the childish mentality of give me now and be able to put off the reward, put off the gratification, seems to be one thing that predicts where a person will land when God calls as he does. Let's pray as we close. I thank you, Lord, for this conversation that we have had. Thank you for placing these stories in scripture, stories of Noah and Abraham and Moses and Jacob and Lot 
And as we look at these stories and see decisions that were made and consequences of those decisions, I pray, Lord, that you would grow our hearts in our knowledge of you and grow our hearts in becoming more and more like you and making mature long-term decisions as opportunities arise. Be with us in the week to come, and may we know you better every day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.